Well, we don't have 3,000 to add today, but we do have three. And very grateful for those three. Um, Adrian Anderson, Brittany Greer, and Will Gunderson will be getting baptized at the end of our service. And so this morning, before we start our Christmas series, I wanted to preach, I think for the first time, on the subject of baptism. And I know that's weird considering I'm a Baptist pastor and we're a Baptist church, but I've mentioned baptism in lots of sermons. We talk about it, but I've never preached on it specifically. So partly because we have these three baptisms this morning and partly because I feel like I've been negligent as a pastor and preacher in talking about it, I feel like now's as good a time as any to help us understand why we do what we do. That is, why we baptize disciples alone into church membership on the basis of a credible profession of faith. So what is baptism? Now, I don't want to assume that that answer is obvious to everyone. I mean, we know what it, what it looks like. We know a person's going to get in this tank and they're going to be dunked and then they're going to be brought back up out of the water. But what, what is it? What is it intended to symbolize? Uh, I'll give you a couple of brief definitions that I hope are helpful in getting our minds around what we think about when we think about baptism. Before I read those definitions, I just want to remind you, this is going to be a fairly brief sermon, considering we're baptizing three individuals near the end, so I won't be going the entire time. And also, I'm not going to answer all the questions that we have about baptism through the years. I mean, we could spend hours upon hours upon hours just surveying church history and why views of baptism are so different among Christians. And some, some Christians believe in baptizing infants, and some believe in baptizing only disciples, and some believe that baptizing disciples should be into church membership. And other, so there's lots, of, there's lots of distinctions and covenant arguments that we could make, which I'm not going to make this morning, but I, I'll, I'll talk about a few of those issues, but not, not in any detail. My, my goal this morning is just to give us baptismal basics. What we see in the New Testament and how that serves as a governor over our practice of baptism as a New Testament local church. So here's the two brief definitions of baptism. Here's the first one from Stephen Wellam, who's a professor over at Southern Seminary. He says, Water baptism is an ordinance or sacrament instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ to be practiced until the end of the age, which signifies a believer's union with Christ in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and one's membership in the church, God's new covenant people. Bobby Jameson gives a shorter, but I think very helpful, succinct definition of baptism when he says baptism is a believer's act of publicly committing himself or herself to Christ and his people by being immersed in water. Now we certainly see some common elements in both Wellam's longer definition and Jameson's shorter one. First, baptism has something to do with obedience to Jesus Christ. Second, baptism is both personal and ecclesiastical. That is, it has a it's a personal act and a church act. The believer is communicating something in baptism, and the church is communicating something in that believer's baptism. The believer is portraying their union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, while the church is receiving that believer into its membership by affirming that Christian's public profession of faith. So in the next several minutes, before we have the joy of voting on and baptizing some new members, I want to walk through a brief biblical treatment of of baptism using the following outline. First of all, the recipients of baptism, the reason for baptism, the result from baptism. Recipients, reason, result. 
First of all, recipients of baptism. The recipients of baptism. Who is it that should be baptized? Is baptism open to everyone? Is, uh, is it reserved for adults? Can children be baptized? Can infants be baptized? Are there any qualifications that need to be met in order to be baptized? Well, in the two passages that Larry read for us, I think we get that answer. We get the basic answer to that question. In the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, Jesus gives us a clear answer, which also forms the title of this sermon, Make Disciples Baptizing Them. So the them we are to baptize are disciples. Now, what is a disciple? Well, in Acts 2, our second passage, we get that answer. Jesus preaches, or Jesus, uh, through the Apostle Peter, preaches a gospel-centered sermon from Psalm 16 on the day of Pentecost. Peter speaks of the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ in verses 22 through 36. He speaks to the people of their sin and 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 specifically their sin of being accomplices in the death of Jesus, that they were the ones who crucified Christ. And we're told that the people, as a result of that preaching of the gospel, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, are cut to the heart, and they cry out, what must we do? And in this passage, Peter gives us the essence of what a disciple is, according to Jesus. So if we want to know who do we baptize, disciples... What is a disciple? We get the answer here in Acts chapter 2. First of all, we get the answer in verse 37, where we read again. Peter says, in response to their question, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the first command that Jesus gives them is repentance. So a disciple is someone who repents. That is someone who turns from sin to God. They reverse course. They do an about-face in their life. They recognize God's authority over them and the ways they have resisted and rejected that authority, and then they cease being their own master, and they turn and submit to Christ as Lord. That's repentance. That's a disciple. But a disciple is also someone who believes. So repentance is accompanied By faith. Now, we don't see the word faith in this particular passage, but we do see a word that indicates that they were believing. Look at verse 44 of Acts chapter 2. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. So he calls these repenters believers. That is because repentance and faith go hand in hand. They go together. Acts 20, verse 21, puts them together that we are to show repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's those, it's these who repent and believe, those who receive the message, according to verse 41, that were baptized. Look again at verse 41. We see who was getting baptized here. So those who received his word, that is those who repented of sin, believed the message he was preaching, were baptized So these are disciples. This is the early church doing what Jesus told them to do. Go make disciples, that is, lead people to repentance and faith in the gospel, and baptize them. And so Peter does that. 
So this is one of several passages in the book of Acts, first of all, verse 41, but this is only one of several passages in the book of Acts where prior belief, that is faith and repentance, are the prerequisites for subsequent baptism. In other words, we only baptize those who repent and believe. We see this throughout the book of Acts. For instance, Acts chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Acts 8, 35 to 38, Then Philip opened his mouth, and he began with the scripture, talking to the Ethiopian eunuch, and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what prevents me from being baptized? So obviously he believed the good news, and then he was baptized on the basis of that. Acts chapter 9, verse 18, And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, that is, Saul of Tarsus, believed, and then he arose and was baptized. Acts chapter 10, verses 47 to 48, In the household of Cornelius, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit as we have? Now how does Acts 2, verse 40, or Acts chapter 2, Verse 36, tell us that we receive the Holy Spirit. Well, by repentance, right? So he says, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So obviously there was repentance in the household of Cornelius as well. Acts 16, verses 14 to 15, referring to Lydia who planted, helped to plant the Philippian church. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Acts chapter 16, again, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house, set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So belief baptism, speaking the word of the Lord, all there. Acts 18, regarding Crispus. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Acts 19, verses 3 to 5, and he said, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized, Paul said, John baptized with water for the with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And then finally, Acts 22, verse 16. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So what these texts universally signify over and over again is that baptism follows the reception of the gospel. Faith in Christ and repentance from sin. These examples are explicit and plentiful and establish the New Testament grounds by which we as a church practice Christian baptism. Now, two possible objections might come up to, to this. What about Acts 2.39, Pastor Mark? So Acts 2.39 says the following, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So doesn't this seem to indicate that baptism is to be administered to children of believing parents as well as the believing parents themselves? Since the promise is not just for parents or new, new Christians, but also for their children? I mean, this 
By the way, everything that I've said so far is absolutely what Presbyterians believe and practice. They practice and believe believer's baptism. They would affirm everything. They would just say, these are first-generation New Testament Christians, and therefore their children would have been baptized as well, even though they're not mentioned, and we should assume that they're mentioned in the household baptisms in the book of Acts. I want to push back on both of those ideas. First of all, let's just look and consider here Acts 2.39. The promise that Luke refers to here, quoting Peter, the promise of Acts 2.39 is more specific and more narrow than what some take it to mean. Surely in Acts 2.39, Peter is simply referring to the very promise that he just stated in Acts 2.38. That if anyone, including the children of believers, repents, they will receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That promise is for believers and their children if they repent. So he said to those listening, repent and be baptized. And doesn't it stand to reason that when Peter continues for this promise is for you, he has in mind the promise he has just given his listeners and the condition that's required to receive that promise? Yes, I think he does. Also, Peter states that this promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So the fact that Peter does not stop with merely saying the promise is for you and your children, but also adds to all who are far off, shows that he does not have in mind some supposed continuation of the sign of the Abrahamic covenant that reserves the sign of the covenant for children as children in believing households in which the children of believers are the recipients of the sign of the covenant. So either... The covenant of grace, which is now signified through the sign of baptism, should be applied to the children of believers and to all people everywhere, or that promise is not for them. Because the promise is for everyone, everyone who are far off. And if that's the case, this is simply not what Peter means. Clearly what Peter means here is that the promise of receiving the Spirit through repentance and faith in Christ is a promise that is just as much for your own children as they repent and trust in Christ, as for people everywhere who repent and trust in Christ. As it is for those who are hearing Peter preach on the day of Pentecost. Thirdly and finally, we have another qualifying phrase. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So God will not fail to give this promised Holy Spirit to all those whom he has elected and so will call effectually to himself. Hence, while the offer of this promise can rightly go to all people, including all children of believers, the fulfillment of the promise will be in the lives only of those whom God calls to himself. And so it's with those qualifications around that idea that I think Peter clearly intends to limit the promise associated with repentance and the following baptism that comes after it to believers, to those who repent, to those who are far off whom the Lord calls to himself, and yes, even praise the Lord to our own children. But what about household baptisms? Well, I'll just give us one example of that. Acts chapter 16, verses 31 to 34. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. 
Now, many Presbyterian brothers and sisters, good Presbyterian brothers and sisters, would believe that, that, um, that he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and that he was baptized along with his household. But the instruction was to the entire household to believe. And all must have believed if they were baptized. The emphasis on he was he became, or, or you notice, believe in the Lord, and you will be saved, you and your household. The emphasis there shows that he's the main character in the story and the head of the household. But that doesn't mean the promise is not for those in his household. See, Paul and Silas are said to have spoken the word of the Lord to both the jailer himself and also to all who were in his house. So since Luke mentions that the word was spoken to all in the house, one might assume from this that all were able to understand the speaking of the word in the house. And since all heard the word spoken, the most likely inference is that all were capable of understanding the word spoken, which means that no, either no infants were present, or if infants were present, the, this did not apply to them because they couldn't understand what was being said. Also, we read here that the baptism of the jailer is by use of the singular Greek word. He was baptized at once. Luke's entire discussion of this account puts the stress on the jailer while adding that his family is included in this offer of salvation. Now, if the household phrase goes on in the, in the Bible, and it can be shown, I think you can see what happens in the household by the end of the, by the, end of the passage in, in Acts 16. After he was baptized at once, he and his family, notice what Luke records. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So there, there are those who say, see, it's just that he believed, but his entire family was baptized. Well, if the household phrase goes only with the rejoicing, then this would exclude infants who would be incapable of comprehending what would occur in order to rejoice. The whole family's rejoicing. The baby's not likely rejoicing except clapping hands because everybody else is. Or if the household phrase goes with believing, clearly this would indicate that all those in the house were of an age to understand and believe the gospel. Now, if the household phrase goes with both the rejoicing and the believing, then we have strong reason to dismiss the notion that the jailer's household included infants. As the jailer believed and rejoiced, so did his, so did his whole family with him believe in God and rejoice. Now, if the jailer alone believed, yet all in his household were baptized, then this would mean that his unbelieving wife and unbelieving older children were baptized, and his belief alone counted. Now, I don't know if any Pado Baptist would want to recommend that practice. When the father of an unsaved home comes to faith in Christ, would it be pastorally correct to urge on him the baptism of all who are in his house, including his wife and children, who are still at home, regardless of their faith or not? The most likely reading of this account is that the jailer heard and believed the gospel, and so too his whole family heard and believed the gospel. And as a result, he and his entire household of, the belie of believers were baptized. Assuming that the jailer's household included infants simply doesn't work out in the text. Simply put, with those things said and those sort of more nuanced arguments around baptizing infants, 
We baptize as a church those whom the Lord Jesus has clearly told us to baptize. And I feel really good in standing before Jesus one day knowing that. Knowing that you told me, make disciples, baptizing them. Is it possible that I was wrong the whole time? Yeah, sure. It's possible. It's possible I was wrong. Right? It's possible that we could be wrong. Right? Can we be wrong? I don't think I'm wrong, but I could be wrong. And he, and he says, you should have been baptizing children. You should have been baptizing children. I, I will acknowledge that I was wrong. And I will acknowledge that I should have been baptizing children. But I think on the basis of clear, the clear, clear, clear New Testament evidence, I think we are, we're standing on the most solid biblical ground possible. So quicker, that was a longer point, I know. But uh, quicker, we're going to talk about the reasons and the result of baptism. Second, the reasons for baptism. When those who heard Peter preach on the day of Pentecost were convicted of their sin and asked what to do, Peter told them to be baptized. You notice that again in verse 37? said, repent and be baptized. So those who received his word in verse 41 were baptized. So I want you to see that repenting and being baptized, receiving the word and being baptized, go hand in hand. Baptism then becomes the way in which these newfound believers go public with their faith. That's the reason for baptism. So what is a believer doing in baptism? What, what are these three believers getting ready to do in their baptism? Well, they're publicly committing themselves to Jesus Christ. Baptism is how you go on record that you're a Christian. It's how you publicly profess your faith in and submission to Christ as Lord. So in order to respond to the gospel, we're commanded to turn to Jesus both inwardly and outwardly. Because the outward declares the inward. Baptism is performed in the open, before witnesses. Think about those who repented and were baptized here in Acts chapter 2. Peter said to them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And they stepped right out, identifying with Christ, knowing what it would cost them, and they were baptized. All those who stepped forward from the crowd to be baptized were marking themselves off for potential future execution as Jesus' followers. And that's exactly what Jesus wants. Followers everyone can see. Matthew chapter 10, 32 and 33, Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before men, I will also acknowledge before, before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Brothers and sisters, there are no secret disciples of Jesus. The only way to follow Jesus is to do it openly in plain sight, where everyone can see you. And baptism is how we declare ourselves before the church and the world that we belong to Jesus. Jesus wants a spotlight that's trained to fix on his disciples so that the world sees him reflecting in us. And baptism is how we step into that spotlight. Now, over the years, especially since the methods of evangelism that were popularized in the Second Great Awakening began to take hold in our Western churches specifically, baptism began to be marginalized as the way people go public in, in their faith. It, it was replaced by things that aren't in the Bible, like walking an aisle at an altar call, or raising your hand, or praying the prayer. 
Those have been the means by which people make their faith public. But that is completely foreign to the previous 1,900 years of church history. In the early 1900s, when Mark Dever, sorry, 1900s, he wasn't that, he's not that old. In the early 1990s, when Mark Dever candidated at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., he was asked if he would be reinstating the altar call at the church, which the previous pastor had discontinued. He said, no. And when one of the members asked, how then is someone supposed to publicly confess their faith? His response is the same as how I would respond. It's a Baptist church. We do it the way Christians have always done it. We baptize people. That's how you publicly profess your faith. So if the New Testament teaching and practice is to be our guide, it seems inescapable that the design and purpose of baptism, both from its place in the Great Commission and its use in apostolic practice, is for the public confession of faith in Christ and the initiation of believers into Christian discipleship. And yet if we stop there, we haven't done full justice to the meaning of baptism, which leads us to our third and final point, the results from baptism. Now, I've argued that baptism is a public act that declares our personal faith in and submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. That is, its salvation significance as the public sign of an invisible faith that demonstrates we are united to Christ in all of his saving work. But baptism has more than just a salvation significance. It also has a church significance. Precisely because baptism initiates us into the life of faith as a disciple of Christ, it also initiates us into the community of faith as a member of the church of Christ. And that's why we read what we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. In baptism, we step out of the world and we step into the church. Baptism confers membership in the local church on the person being baptized. In transacting this commitment, the church makes a commitment of its own. We're going to make a commitment here in just a minute. The act of baptism conveys the believer's commitment, which Adrian and Brittany and Will are going to do in just a second. Their commitment is going to be, I pledge myself to Christ, and I also pledge myself to you, his people. And then we convey by voting them in to membership on the basis of their testimony that we affirm your profession of faith, that you are members of Christ's body, and we will watch over you and care for you. So in baptism, the believer speaks to God in the church, and the church speaks for God to the individual. So when a church affirms and portrays a believer's union with Christ, and a believer commits himself to Christ and his people, that believer is united to the church and marked off from the world. And the believer is therefore added to the team roster of Team Jesus and given a jersey to wear. Baptism publicly identifies someone as a Christian. In baptism, the church says to the world, look here, this one belongs to Jesus. And because baptism identifies someone as a Christian, it initiates that person into the company of the church, which is God's new covenant people on earth. And so we see that this being added to the church was not a mere ticking of the box. Right. In fact, just as Jesus commanded us to make disciples and baptizing, baptize them, what did he say after that in the Great Commission? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So baptism is not the finish line. It's the starting line. It ain't the end of the race. It's the beginning of the race. Now, I don't want to diminish the importance and glory of baptism, but brothers and sisters, there's a lot that happens after baptism. 
There's a lot that's happened in our lives after our baptisms. There's a lot that's going to happen in our new brother and sister's lives after their baptism. And so that's why being added to the church is so central because this is how the people are going to be taught to obey everything that Jesus commanded them. It's in the context of the church that this command is fulfilled. How did the apostles apply that in the book of Acts? Well, they planted churches and people who received the word were baptized and added into them. And it was in these churches that they learned to obey Jesus by being devoted to him and to one another. We read about this in Acts 42, uh, 2, 42 to 46. They gathered together, they prayed together, they studied together, they worshiped together, they served one another, they took communion together, they shared their lives and possessions together. And the Lord was adding more and more to their number as they were doing that, as outsiders began coming to faith in Christ through the witness of that church community. And these new disciples were then baptized, and they were added into the church as well. And they began devoting, devoting themselves to the very things that those early disciples were devoted themselves to. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. Now let me conclude with just a few applications, and then we will proceed with our baptisms. I want to answer uh, a few different objections or applications to people who may be in various camps regarding baptism. First of all, Someone who might say, I don't have a need for, and I don't see a need for baptism. Why do I need to make such a public fuss about being a Christian? Isn't faith something personal? Um, Isn't it enough that I trust in Jesus? God knows my heart. Well, yes, your faith is personal, but it can never be private. Jesus already said it, right? You have to go public if you want to be acknowledged by him. You acknowledge him in public, he'll acknowledge you in public. So, And how do you know that your heart is for Jesus and you trust Jesus if you're not willing to obey what he told you to do? Obeying Jesus reveals that you trust Jesus, and the first command Jesus gives any new disciple is to be baptized. So if you're trusting Jesus and haven't been baptized, you need to obey the first command that Jesus gives to you as a disciple, which is to be baptized. So a second objection may be, well, okay, I get what you're saying there, Pastor Mark, but I've waited way too long now. I mean, I've been in Christ a long time. I wasn't baptized back then, so why do I need to be baptized now after all this time? Since it's so long after my conversion, wouldn't it be meaningless anyway? Well, it certainly would have been better to be baptized as soon as you came to faith in Christ, but when it comes to obeying Christ's commands, late is definitely better than never. And the time has not passed, and that does not make the command less binding just because time has passed. The command is still there, and the need for your public testimony is still there. What about number three? I don't know where to get baptized or how to do it. Well, that would present a problem. But here's my advice. Find a church that preaches the gospel and teaches the Bible. Find a church where people are serious about following Jesus and helping others follow him. Introduce yourself to that church's leaders. Let them know you're a believer in Jesus and you want to be baptized and commit to joining that church, serving in the church and letting the church help you grow more like Christ. And if that church is here, we'd love to talk to you about that. And if that church is not here, we'd love to help you find one where you could do that. Number four, I was already baptized as an infant. Well, if you were baptized as an infant, the Bible does not authorize us to baptize the infant children of believers. Baptism is a sign that the gospel has taken effect in someone's life, that a person's united to Christ. Baptism points to a promise that has been fulfilled. So if you were baptized as an infant... You need to be baptized for the first time. 
Despite the noble intentions of your parents or the church that baptized you, you remain in the same position as anyone else who came to Christ and has not been baptized. But what if I was baptized, but I wasn't sure I was a believer? Some people are baptized of their own accord, treating the act as a profession of faith in Christ, but later realize they weren't Christians at all at the time of baptism. Well, if you were not a Christian at the time of your baptism, if to the best of your knowledge your baptism was not a genuine profession of trust in Christ and a sincere pledge of submission to Christ, then your baptism wasn't baptism. It was a getting wet ceremony. And if this describes you, you need to be baptized. Now, a person who was previously baptized can have a weak profession of faith. Jesus assumes that. If it's the first thing you do as a Christian, you're still a baby Christian when you do it. So some Christians can be a little hard on themselves when they look back at their baptism, especially if they've been in Christ a long time. They're like, how could I have even been a Christian then? Well, how could you have even been a baby then? Right? Remember all the stuff you could do as a baby? Nothing. Remember all you could do as a baby Christian? Hardly anything. Right? So we can be preoccupied with getting the baptism right, and sometimes it can result in us misplacing our trust in baptism rather than in Christ. And we miss the fact that the baptism is the front door. Church discipline is the back door. So if anyone was to ever depart from the way that they pledged themselves to live in their baptism, that's when we would discipline them as a congregation. Church discipline allows for spurious conversions that don't last. And so we don't need to stress on the front end. We, of course, do need to be conscientious. We do need to be careful. We need to strive as we best we can to make credible professions of faith. But that's why we baptize people on the basis of profession, not possession. We don't know if they possess faith. We know they profess faith, and we hope they possess faith. But time will tell. But what about if you were baptized in a church that denies the gospel? Because Jesus demands that we be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism depends on the gospel. And so if there's no gospel witness in the church, there's no validity to the baptism because the church is not a church, according to Jesus. When a church has lost and departed completely away from the gospel and doesn't preach it anymore, all the ordinances that they administer are, in, are, are, are not, not seen in the kingdom, not permissible by Jesus. So if every Christian were authorized to baptize simply by being a Christian, the church wouldn't factor into this equation. But since Jesus has authorized the church to make the official declaration on earth on behalf of heaven, then under normal circumstances, only the church is authorized to baptize. And only a body of believers that affirms and proclaims the gospel has a right to call itself a church. You say, but pastor, what about the Ethiopian eunuch? He didn't have a church around him. That's because he's the first convert to Ethiopia. He didn't have a church yet. He was going back to start one. A church that effectively denies the gospel is no church at all which means that they have no authorization from Jesus to baptize people in his name. Therefore, a baptism that's performed by a gospel-denying church is not, in fact, baptism. Now, to be clear, no church has perfect doctrine, including this one, and no preacher is infallible, including maybe especially this one. I'm not saying a baptism is only valid if the church is 100% doctrinally sound. And I'm not saying that if a pastor himself proves unfaithful to the gospel he preaches, then the baptisms he performed are rendered invalid. Instead, I'm saying the same gospel that gives birth to the church in the first place is what gives authority to baptize and to be baptized. And I'm less interested in the man doing the baptized than baptizing than in the church authorizing it. In order for a church to baptize, it must affirm and proclaim the biblical gospel. Then finally, 
What if your baptism had no connection whatsoever to a church at all? If you're in a place where there is no church because there are no Christians, well, I would argue that anyone who is the gospel has the authority to baptize. But if you're in an area where a local church exists, a baptism with no connection whatsoever to a church isn't baptism. Now you say, what? I was baptized at a youth camp. Well, we've talked to a number of incoming visitors about things like that. And, and because oftentimes those camps are connected to a church or churches, they, they, are, they, they count as valid baptisms. But they are, they are seriously defective in the baptismal practice because they're doing it apart from the local church and sort of away from the local church. But it's, it's valid. Remember, baptism is a statement by two parties, though, not just one, the baptizer and the baptizee. Only the church is authorized to swear in kingdom citizens, and only the church is authorized to administer the sign of the covenant. Only the church has the authority to say, look here, everybody, this one belongs to Jesus. So in conclusion, let me say this before we enter into some baptisms. Baptism is an open declaration that you belong to Jesus. And if you're reluctant to openly declare yourself as a follower of Jesus, then baptism is what you most need to do. Faith in Jesus is meant to redefine you. What's true about your past, your present, your future, who your family is, who who your highest allegiance is. Baptism is a way of picturing and proclaiming all of these realities. And if you try to keep your faith private, your faith will wither and die. Like our bodies, faith is strengthened by exercise, and baptism is an exercise of faith. Baptism is a faith-fueled action, and it's an action that sets the trajectory for our whole life of faith. And to be a Christian is to be open about it. The Christian life is lived on stage amidst the company of the church before the watching world. And baptism is the first step onto that stage. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the purposes that you have given us in baptism. Thank you for what it pictures and symbolizes. Thank you for the opportunity that we have before us now to baptize two sisters and a a young brother in Christ. We pray all these things that you would bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen.